turn to Philippians chapter 4. Apologize that I've been doing all the talking today. We usually have a, our elders do announcements and elder prayer, but sometimes I get to do it, and I'm excited about that. Hope you don't get tired of me. Philippians chapter 4, uh, we're going to look at verses 2 through 7 this morning. Well, as you can tell, we're getting near the end of Philippians, so we're getting uh, pretty much to the conclusion of, of Paul's letter to the Philippians. I hope you've enjoyed it. I've really enjoyed this letter. Um, it's the letter of joy, right? He mentions that word more than any other throughout this letter. And so, after we conclude Philippians in the coming weeks, we'll, we'll go back to the Old Testament. I will announce in the coming weeks what, what book that's going to be, but... Um, yeah, so we, we like to do that. We like to go back and forth, Old and New Testament, so we get the full counsel of God's Word. So if you would please stand for the reading of God's Word. I'm going to begin in verse 1 and go through verse 7 of chapter 4. This is God's Word. Therefore, my brothers, whom I love and long for, my joy and crown, stand firm thus in the Lord, my beloved. I entreat Euodia and I entreat Syntyche to agree in the Lord. Yes, I ask you also, true companion, help these women who have labored side by side with me in the gospel together with Clement and the rest of my fellow workers, whose names are in the book of life. Rejoice in the Lord always, and again I say, rejoice. Let your reasonableness be known to everyone. The Lord is at hand. Do not be anxious about anything. But in everything, by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. And the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. This is God's word. You may be seated. Would you pray with me? Father, may the words of my mouth and the meditations of our hearts together be acceptable in your sight. O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, if you were to get to know me, you will know that in terms of my personality, I love peace, right? I'm a peacemaker. Love peace. I love harmony. Um, And most people do, right? Um, But if you were to compare personalities, I'm not like a bull in the china shop trying to force my way in a room and control things. Um, I like harmony. I like things to be, I like people to be happy (laughs) around me. And a few years back, the staff at Hope took a personality test called an Enneagram. I don't know if you've heard of these personality tests. And it was helpful because we all sort of learned a little bit about each other. And it helps, you know, I think people work better together when you know what your personality type is and the personality type of your boss or your coworkers. And even in a marriage, maybe it's helpful to do that. Um, as a Christian, though, we, we know we're, we've been given certain gifts, certain personalities, but we also know that we have to push back against some of those personality traits. And we, we, we trust the Lord will sanctify us and grow us even when we're you know, in the boundaries of a per type, personality type. Well, the Enneagram personality, it's called a type nine peacemaker. That's who I am. And it's how it's described. Type nines are accepting, trusting, and stable. They're usually creative, optimistic, and supportive, but can also be too willing to go along with others to keep the peace. They want everything to go smoothly, 
and be without conflict. But they can also tend to be complacent, simplifying problems and minimizing anything upsetting. And they typically have problems with inertia and stubbornness. But at their best, they're indomitable and all-embracing. They are able to bring people together and heal conflict. So there's, there's good things about the personality I have, and there's things I need to work on. And I do think, I, you know, I love peace, but don't we all love peace? So how do we define peace? So if you were to go to the definition, the, the dictionary, how, do we, how does the dictionary define it? Well, it defines it as freedom from disturbance. Tranquil. A state or period in which there is no war. Right? Everything is at peace. Many times a week, and I know you guys do this, you drive over the James River Bridge. And I do this Tuesday through Friday. We take our kids to school over there. And sometimes the water is rough, right? Sometimes you see the white caps, you see, you see all kinds of motion in the water. There's, you know, there's weather, there's fog. Um, one time, actually two weeks ago, I was driving over the bridge, and all I see ahead of me is a cloud of black smoke, on the bridge, and I'm, run, I'm driving these four little kids to school, and I'm thinking, should I be driving over the bridge right now? It looks like the bridge is on fire. That's not good. Thankfully, the fire trucks got there, and they put the fire out. It was a truck that had uh, been engulfed in flames. We made it okay. We had to wait about 25 minutes. There are some mornings, though, when you drive over the GRB, and it's, the water looks like glass. And the weather is perfect. There's not a cloud in the sky. That The wind isn't blowing at all. And that's when things are at peace. That's how I want to drive over the JRB. When things are at peace. There's no disturbance. Everything is still. And that's how we want our lives to be too, right? We want peace. We want tranquility. No disturbances. I want you to flip it real quick to Revelation 22. It's really easy to find. Go to the very last page of your Bible. Very last chapter. And in it, John has this vision of peace and blessing. It says in verse 1 of chapter 22, Then the angel showed me the river of the water of life, bright as crystal, flowing from the throne of God and of the Lamb through the middle of the street of the city, also on either side of the river, the tree of life, with its twelve kinds of fruit, yielding its fruit each month. The leaves of the tree were for the healing of the nations, and no longer will there be anything accursed, but the throne of God and the Lamb will be in it, and his servants Will worship him. And it goes on talking about the blessing. But I want you to I want to use that as a picture in your mind as this river is flowing from the throne of the temple into the new creation, and the tree of life is there, and the river blesses everything it touches. It brings peace, it brings healing. We get a taste of that here on earth. We get a taste of that peace, of that healing as Christians. And it flows from the gospel, the good news of what Jesus did to save us. It flows from what he did. And what that does is, and this is what I'm going to walk you through this morning, it gives us vertical peace with God, first and foremost. And then it gives us internal peace with ourselves and our anxious hearts. 
And then it flows even further and it gives us peace amongst each other in the conflicts that we have sometimes. It gives us external peace. So vertical peace, internal peace, and then external peace. That is the the three points that we're going to look at this morning, that we have peace above, we have peace within, and we have peace uh, with each other, between each other. And they all rely on each other. You, you, you will not have peace within if you don't have peace above. You will not have peace with other people unless you have peace above and peace within. Well, let's look at Paul's argument here, what he's doing here in this final verses of this letter. He, look at the idea of peace above. Where do we see peace vertically? Well, look at the phrases he's using as he's talking about this conflict between these two women. And as he encourages us in our own anxieties, he says in verse 2, I entreat Euodia and I treat Syntyche, who I'll get to later in, the, in this. But he says, to agree in the Lord. In the Lord. And then he says in verse 3, who've worked side by side with me in the gospel. In the gospel. And then at the end of that verse, whose names are in the book of of life. And if you go another verse, rejoice in the Lord. Look at the repetition of what he's saying. In the Lord, in the Lord. You are in the gospel. You are in Christ. Agree in the Lord. Rejoice in the Lord. And then if you go to verse 7, he'll guard your heart and mind in Christ Jesus. See, you see what Paul's doing? He's using this theologically weighted phrase again and again to remind them of their vertical relationship with God. And that they have peace with God. But they used to not have peace with God. They were born enemies of God. I want to keep, keep your place here in Philippians 4, and I want to just go one letter ahead, one book ahead to Ephesians. Ephesians chapter 2, part of which I read this morning in the Assurance of Pardon. But Ephesians chapter 2, Paul lays out the gospel here. And he talks about that we were once separated from God. He says in verse 1, chapter 2, You were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind. And we're by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. We start out as God's enemies. We all do. Going our own way, seeking our own kingdom. We're rebels from birth. But what happens, verse 4, but God being rich in mercy, because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ, by grace you have been saved. And so later he'll talk about there's this dividing wall of hostility. There's this wall between us and God. And we can't penetrate that wall. Only God can penetrate it. God is the one who acts. He is the one who saves. He is the one who changes our heart. He wins us to himself. Going to verse 13 in Ephesians 2, this is what I read earlier, that in Christ Jesus, now you who are once far off, away from God, separated because of your sin, have been brought near by the blood of Christ. 
For he himself, Jesus himself, is our peace. Who made us both one and has broken down in the flesh, his flesh the dividing wall of hostility. He's reminding, what, what Paul is doing in Philippians is reminding them of what he did to save them. You were in the Lord now. You were, you were separated from God at one point, but now you have peace with God. He says that in Romans 5. He says, therefore, since we've been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. He says something, again, very similar in Colossians chapter 1. Your women were here at the women's conference. She, I, I assume Glenna talked about this, that in Jesus all the fullness of God is pleased to dwell And he reconciles all things to himself, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the what? Blood of his cross. And there is the gospel crystal clear that Jesus takes the punishment you and I deserved in our place. He becomes our sacrifice. He becomes our substitute. And not only that, he gives us his perfect life. That's what it means to be in Christ that you've been saved, you've been reconciled. And so that's where we must start. We must start with where Paul starts, going back to Philippians, that he starts with our relationship, our healed relationship with God vertically. And without peace with God, peace within yourself is really impossible. Without peace with God, we will live in self-doubt, self-shame, and self guilt our whole lives and you know why because we really are guilty we heap guilt on ourselves and shame because at the end of the day we truly are guilty by what we've said by what we've done by being enemies to jesus by being enemies to god and so before i move on If you don't know this relationship, if you do not have this vertical healing, this vertical peace with God, it's available to you at this very moment if you trust in the one God sent to save you, to take your sins and to give you his own righteousness. It's available to you right now if you trust in him. And once you do, then you can experience internal peace. And that's what we're going to look at next, peace within So how does Paul then go from peace with God to peace within our souls? What does he say to lead us there? Well, there's a few places he brings this out. Look at verse 3. He says, These women have labored side by side with me in the gospel, together with this man named Clement and the rest of my fellow workers whose names are in the book of life. Notice what he says at the end there, that their names are in the book of life. I don't know if you watched the Super Bowl, but you probably couldn't watch the Super Bowl without all the the panning of the camera up to the celebrity boxes where everybody's sitting who was in these million-dollar luxury suites. Of course, you saw Taylor Swift there and and all the other celebrities mingling, talking. Um, And I was just thinking to myself, you had to be on a pretty special list to be in that, super, that box, right, in, that, in the Super Bowl. And I'm imagining the security was pretty tight around that area. You couldn't go up the escalator to those areas if you didn't have a, a special pass or if your name was on a list. 
We have, we're a part of an even better list if you're in Christ. Your name is in the book of life. And Paul uses the same phrase as what we read in Revelation. Revelation 20 says that if your name is in the book of life, this, this eternal life book, then you're safe from what it says is the lake of fire. It says that anyone whose name was not written in the book of life was thrown into the lake of fire. Or you'll be punished forever and ever. That is what we're saved from in Christ. Our names are in this book of everlasting life and safety and joy. And it can't be taken out. It can't be erased. It can't be scrubbed. If you're in Christ, you are in the book of life forever and ever. And so that should initially change some things within you, right? If you know that about yourself, you're in the book of life, you should have peace dwelling up with inside you, and then you should live your life in thanksgiving. Going down to verse 6, he says, as we pray to God, then we do it with thanksgiving, letting our requests be know- made known to God. He, he uses that intentionally, that a li- the life of the Christian is a life of thanksgiving. It's a, it's a life of gratitude because we have peace with God, because he saved us, because we have eternal life, then, then we can rejoice. As he says in verse 4, we can rejoice in the Lord all, always. And again I say, rejoice. Let's go to verse 6, because he gets into some important inner peace and struggles that we have currently. He says, do not be anxious about anything. But in everything, by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. And the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. Here's where it gets hard, doesn't it? Paul says to you and I, do not be anxious about anything. How many of us have not been anxious about anything this week? How are you doing there? It's hard not to wake up anxious, isn't it? Or go to bed anxious. Or what about some of us who struggle with anxiety attacks and panic attacks, where it's like your body has this physical reaction to anxiety that you can't control? This author, Alan Noble, on his, in his book on getting out of bed, he, he talks about this passage. And he says, these verses have sometimes been twisted to claim that all anxiety is merely a failure to trust God. And he says, while sometimes that is why we are anxious, because we're not trusting God, it's not the only reason. He says, what Paul offers here is not an alternative to therapy and medication, nor a simple fix to the agony that often abides. Instead, he offers us a peace that can enable us to carry on. What Paul's doing, he's offering us a peace. Because, I mean, like I said, many of us have anxiety. We have worries. We have cares. Paul, the Apostle Paul himself, said he has anxiety every day for the churches that he's pastoring. He says that in 2 Corinthians 11. It's a daily part of life, in a sense. So what do we do with our anxieties? What do we do with our worries? Where can we go with them? Alan Noble continues, he says, What gets me every time is that the peace of God goes beyond all understanding. 
right? Isn't that what he says in verse 7? And the peace of God which surpasses all understanding. He says, I don't know how I would handle life if this weren't true. Very often I can't understand how I can have any peace or how I could deserve any peace. I can't rationally see that things are okay or that they ever could be okay. I don't understand how I could be okay. I can't solve things or see a way out of the messes that I'm in. Sometimes I can't even imagine tomorrow or at least a tomorrow worth getting out of bed for. But none of that matters. He says, God's peace is in no way constrained to my imagination. You hear that again. God's peace is in no way constrained to my imagination. And so I'll ask you this morning, are you going through something this morning, this very moment, that is so tough, that is so difficult to wrap your brain around and even understand how God's peace could come into your heart. I've been there. So where do we go when we're there? We don't know how God's peace could even come into our lives. He says, I may be only able to say, Lord, I do not feel nor understand your peace, but I know your peace is beyond my understanding. So I'll trust you. And I will act. Because the truth is that you and I are limited. We're limited. We're finite. We, we, we can't understand everything fully. But we can trust a God who does understand everything fully. Who can give us peace that is beyond our limited understanding. Our, 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 what our limited minds can fathom. And so here's how Alan Noble defines peace. He says sometimes that's what peace is. An action based on faith and not an emotional state. Right? Peace is an action, can be an action based on faith. He says, some days that may be all that you have. The knowledge that God loves you and desires you to get out of bed regardless of the reasons you may find to give up. So you act out of your peace and fear and trembling. That is a great description of what I think a peace is of, of, that's beyond our understanding, beyond our comprehension. And so when you come to that place in your life where you're asking, how do I find peace when my world is collapsing, when my dreams are collapsing, when my disappointments are setting in? I want you to go to this place and think an action, that, that, that peace is an action of faith on your part to trust God who cares for you, who says in, in 1 Peter 5 that we can cast all our anxieties upon him who cares for us. That that's where we can go with our worries. That's where we can go with our anxieties. You turn your worry into prayer. God wants to hear your anxieties because he wants you to pray them. He wants you to lean in on him because he cares for you. That's where we go. And that's how... We rejoice in the Lord always. Sometimes in, in Paul's letters, he says things again that are like, what, are you just being hyperbolic here? How do we rejoice in the Lord always? Are you always rejoicing? Are you rejoicing in this very moment? He says, and again I say rejoice. Well, yes, it's important to understand what he means by rejoice. Rejoice doesn't necessarily mean you're happy, right? It's not real possible for us just to, God command us to be happy all the time. But you can be rejoicing even when you're sorrowful, even when you're sad, even when you're mourning. 
because you hold on to the identity you have in Christ. You hold on to the truth that he loves you, he cares for you, and you trust him. That is where our rejoicing is. Paul is writing from prison, remember? He's writing from prison, and yet he lives a life of joy because of the Lord and his love for him. So that's the peace we have within. So we get peace vertically from God, we get peace within, and then that leads to peace between, between each other. Now we're ready finally to tackle interpersonal lack of peace, the conflict in our lives. So he says, go back to verse 2. He names two ladies, he actually names three people, two ladies, I entreat Euodia and I entreat Syntyche to agree in the Lord. You know, church conflicts happened even 2,000 years ago. People struggled to get along back then. I'm so glad that we don't have to deal with any of that anymore, right? No more conflict. You know, why does he name these two women? Likely he names them because they're two female leaders in the church, that they're public, uh, that they are well-known. And their dispute and their conflict is well-known. And so that's why he has to name it publicly and talk about it. Within, remember, this letter would have been read to the whole church. And so they're likely leaders who are fighting, who are not agreeing. This was a public problem, and Paul is concerned about the reputation of the church. He's concerned about the gospel and the message they're preaching and the, the, the lives that they're living out, the witness that the church is tasked with, with in the surrounding society. So he asks uh, this man, true companion, if you have, maybe you have a note in your Bible that says, or loyal, loyal uh, Zizigus, basically it's a transliteration of that Greek word, so it could be a man's name, um, which means true companion. He says, help these women who've labored side by side with me in the gospel, together with Clement, so he's probably including Clement in, in there, to help them, and the rest of my fellow workers. And so they're not agreeing, they're fighting. I don't know if you're familiar with the show Kitchen Nightmares by Gordon Ramsay. Uh, I don't know if it still airs anymore. It's, it's similar to the show that I used to really like, uh, which was called uh, Restaurant Impossible with Robert Irvine. And I love these shows because they go in there, they're these powerful cooks and chefs, and they, they transform a whole restaurant that's failing, and they make it successful again. Well, in this one episode, Gordon Ramsay comes in, and... He is dealing with a family that's fighting, essentially. Like, the restaurant issues are like, he has to set those aside for most of the episode, and he has to just help them love each other. They've hurt each other in in lots of different ways, and they're continually stepping on each other's toes and fighting. And so it's interesting, he does more counseling than anything in in these episodes. He's this great, great chef. And at one point in the episode, he gets everybody around the table, and and he, and he basically has a, a moment of intervention and tries to get them to right, say they're sorry, forgive, work together well. And at one point, the son is crying because he, he's in conflict with his dad and mom who hate his girlfriend who's also there. But what Gordon says is, guys, parents, just get along. He just wants you all to get along and be happy. And that's, all the, that's really all the counsel he can say. is like, just guys, just get along. Well, I learned later that 
you know, he, he, of course, on every episode, they, they have a turnaround moment, and everybody likes each other, and the restaurant's doing great. I learned later, like two months later, the restaurant fails, and lawsuits are f- filed between these family members. Telling people to just get along never works for very long. <laughs> right? As your pastor, I've got to have something more in my tool belt than just get along, you crazy people. Get along. Be happy. I've got to have something more. And Paul has something more. And I'm going to go back to that same idea. He says, agree, help these women agree in the Lord. You see what he's pointing back to is their common vertical peace they have with God. He's reminding them of their status before God, their identity. He's reminding them of Ephesians 2, that they were separated from God far off, that, that, that they had a debt they could have never have paid, that they owed God. And out of love, out of free grace, he forgave them. He's reminding them of what true love really looks like and true forgiveness really looks like. He's pointing them back to the cross. You know, often when people are in an argument, whether it's a marriage counseling they have to come in for and they're fighting or any other kind of family or disagreement. Rarely are they considering where, what the Lord has to do with any of this argument, where the Lord is in any of this. And I've actually seen counselors do this where they ask the couple, have you thought about what the Lord thinks about this argument? Or where is the Lord in this disagreement? Because they're not thinking vertically. They're thinking only horizontally. They're only after what they think they want and deserve. But when we know that we've been forgiven, that our names are in the book of life, that we'll live eternally with our Savior, we've been forgiven all our sin, and we have all his righteousness, that will give you joy in the midst of conflict. It will get you through horrible things, horrible tragedies, and it will get you through arguments and conflict. Because guess what? That joy is not dependent upon other people. That joy you have in the Lord is not dependent upon other people. And because of Christ's love for you, you can lose an argument. You can seek other people's good rather than getting your own way. You can look out for the interests of others instead of your own interests, as Paul says in Philippians 2. You can put up with people who who are miserable and difficult and you want to walk away from. But the gospel calls you to draw near. To draw near to them. He says, let, verse 5, let your reasonableness be known to everyone. That word for reasonableness can also be translated gentleness, moderation, forbearance, and patience, and mercy. Not giving someone what they deserve. Let your gentleness be known to everyone. That's actually what Paul, when he gives qualifications for elders in the church, leaders, he says, an elder is to be gentle and not quarrelsome. It's one of the the fruit of the Spirit, right? Gentleness, patience, kindness. It's what should mark the Christian. Why? Because God was that way to you. God was that way to, to me. 
He didn't give us what we deserved. He was merciful to us. And He is our peace. As I begin to close, I want to I point us back to the cross and, re, and remind ourselves, as, as, as Ephesians 2 says, that Jesus is our peace. That He didn't just, he didn't just display our, a peace for us. He, he became our peace. That He took our place that he displayed the ultimate mercy and forbearance to you. And one of, the, one of the things that just blows my mind is as he's being nailed to the cross, while his, while his hands are being nailed to the wood, his feet are being nailed to the wood, as his creation is doing that to him, the people he created, he says, Father, forgive them, for they do not know what they do. They know not what they do. They cast, and they cast lots to divide his garments. He said, Father, forgive them. What ultimate mercy he's showing them. As we're going to sing in a moment, we're going to sing, He is my joy. Jesus is our joy, our righteousness and freedom. My steadfast love, my deep and boundless peace. I could conclude with this story from Mark 4. You all know this story. It's when... It's when the disciples are on the boat and they're they're crossing the lake and a storm comes up. Great storm and Jesus is asleep. It's in every single gospel except John, all three synoptic gospels. Because it's important. It's an important teaching moment for us all. They're in this storm. Jesus is asleep. And they say, Jesus, wake up. Do you not care that we're perishing? Come on, help us. He wakes up. He rebukes the storm by saying, what? Peace. Be still. And immediately, there was great calm. And because of their lack of faith, he said, where, is, where was your faith? I was here the whole time. I'm with you all the time. And what did they say? Who is this? Who is this person? who controls the wind and the waves. We can say that he is our peace. Because even when your life is rocky and the waves are seem like they're going to go over your head in life, he is in the boat with you. You can cry out to him at any moment, and he is your peace. And he did everything to give you eternal peace, to make you right with God and to make sure your name is in the book of life. And so that will then, brothers and sisters, flow down into your inner peace, and then that will help you navigate conflict in the church, which is bound to happen. It's been happening for thousands of years, and it's going to continue. But it helps us engage with other people who are difficult because we've been forgiven. Therefore, we can forgive. Would you pray with me? Father, we thank you that we have a God who grants us peace. Peace is is such a blessing. It's such a blessing to have a peaceful life. And we know we get it at times. We get tastes of it. And we thank you that in heaven we're going to enjoy eternity of peace as you bring the new heavens and the new earth down. And Father, we long for that moment. We long for that day. And so would you make that more and more of a reality in our own hearts as we entrust our lives you. Help us.
or we're weak. We have anxieties. We have worries. And we need you. Help us to cry out to you more and more, and you will come to our rescue. In Jesus' name, amen.